Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, April 28th, 2019, we begin our new series titled Genesis, In the Beginning. Today's sermon, The Beginning, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1a. Enjoy. This morning, we're only talking about the first four words. It's interesting because those first four words are in the beginning, God. Four words in English, two words in Hebrew. Beroshef Elohim. That word, Beroshef, means Genesis. We translate that as in the beginning. The word Elohim is a name for God. But this particular word is is a, a plural noun for God, and it has three distinct meanings. It means creator, sustainer, and judge. Now, those are very important. I want to make sure you hold on to it because we're going to be talking about that in our message this morning. Because you need to understand something. The first things that God would tell you about him, they probably matter. The first way he describes himself to us probably matters. So let's stop and let's read just the first two verses, even though we're going to do uh, only the first four words. Genesis chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, like I said, Genesis means the beginning, but the beginning of what? Well, beginning of time as we know it. Beginning of our world, of mankind, of society of our families, of nations. Verse one begins with God, and it makes sense that right from the very beginning, the purpose of the whole book would be outlined there for what we ought to be thinking. Every human being here should stop and develop a worldview that is God-oriented from the very beginning. Now, a worldview is simply how you and I see life. And it should change when we come to faith. As a Christian, the worldview that I believe that Genesis wants us to have is that we believe that all life comes from God. We believe that God sustains all life. We believe that all life has value. Every single human being that walks on the planet, whether they're in a a womb or not, Every human being has value because it is imprinted with the image of God. Now, we're not going to get into that this morning. We'll save that for when you get to verses 26 and 27. But we also believe that we can only find our purpose in our Creator and that ultimately we are accountable to God alone. Now, here's what that means that means that Genesis is the foundational book of the Bible. And if we're right, you will honor and serve God because of it. If you're wrong, you're probably going to spend a lifetime searching for meaning and for truth and trying to make sense out of life. Now, not everybody sees it that way. Some people will look at the book of Genesis and the Bible as a whole as a bunch of stories. Well, I think, you know, there was just some, some people that got together and they decided to, you know, give us some moral direction in life and some examples to follow, sort of like Aesop's fables. That's not the correct way to look at the book of Genesis or the Bible. The first chapter of Genesis alone makes it clear that this is all about God. 
In 31 verses, the name of God is mentioned 32 times. This is about God. Now, others will see the Genesis as a sort of Hebrew poetry. The problem with that is, is that Genesis has no characteristics at all of Hebrew poetry. It doesn't use figurative language. It doesn't use, um, let's put it this way, Hebrew poetry is nonlinear, meaning that it jumps around a little bit. It goes forward, backwards. It uses different thoughts all together to, to say something in a poetic way. Genesis is linear, though. It doesn't do that. It doesn't go backwards, it keeps going in a timeline. Maybe most importantly is the fact though that none of the New Testament writers ever saw it as poetry. They saw it as fact. Dr. Walter Brown, who lives in Scottsdale here, listed 71 New Testament references to Genesis 1 through 11. Every single New Testament writer refers to Genesis 1 to 11. Jesus himself quotes the first seven chapters of Genesis. I mean, he saw it as fact. Now, as a church, we believe Genesis is historical narrative. That means it's not poetry, but it's also not a science book. I like the way that Dr. Frederick Philby, a professor of chemistry, explains it when he says this. The scientific description of the how of creation is beyond the understanding of human brains. But Genesis 1 is written for all readers, establishing the fact that the God of the Bible is also the God of creation. In language simple enough for all of mankind of all time, man does not need to know every fact of creation. It's God's handiwork. It is sufficient enough for Hebrew children or Greek thinkers for Latin Christians to medieval knights, to modern scientists to little children, east or west, rich or poor, young or old, simple or learned, it is exactly what God told Moses to write. It's perfect. Now, at the beginning of our study of Genesis, you need to keep in mind then what the very first things that God told us about himself were how he described himself, that he is the creator of all, the sustainer of all, that he will hold us accountable. I believe he wants us to know him. And then at the very end, there's a little challenge here that this makes sense that I'm gonna hit you with. But the first thing is this. God is the cause of all life. God is the cause of all life. Now, if we believe the first four words, in the beginning, God then you believe that God is the, entire, is the cause of the entire universe. That belief in itself destroys atheism because the universe was created by God. It destroys pantheism because God is not in everything, but God is the creator of everything. So many people think, oh, well, you know, God's in the mountains or God's, you know, most kids would say God's at the beach. But I mean, you know, I mean, they'd say God is in this thing. No, God is not in those things. He created them. They're part of his creation. To believe God created everything destroys polytheism because there's only one God that created all things. It destroys materialism because the matter that makes up every single thing had to come from someplace. It had to have a beginning. It destroys humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality and focus. It destroys evolutionism because God himself created all things. Now I realize that we no longer live in an age 
where the existence of God is assumed. And so let's look at the, ca- the cause of life logically just for a second. Let's start by assuming that something exists. Now, if you're sitting here going, well, I'm not completely sure that I exist, I'm going to invite the person next to you to pinch you. Okay? Anybody here feel like that? I mean, okay. I mean, I mean, because I pretty much guarantee that when you jump up, you'll realize you exist, right? The key here is this. If something exists, then something has always existed because something had to come before. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's only three possibilities for how anything got here. One is that it always existed, so it's eternal, Two is it was created by someone who is eternal. Or three is it's self-created. Now, since we cannot find a single thing that's living on our planet that is absolutely eternal, that has been alive forever, forever, it's pretty easy to throw out number one. Number three, though, number three is the most popular view of the unbelieving scientific community today. The idea of self-creation. You'll hear words like quantum motion. It's the idea of taking space and time and, and matter and chance and putting it all together and somehow, basically, there was creation by chance or self-creation. Now, here's the problem with that. For something to create itself, it would have to exist before it created itself in order to create itself. That a little bit confusing? You see the problem here? You would have to exist and not exist at the same time, scientifically. That's nonsense. Webster's Dictionary tells us that chance is something that happens as a result of something that's unknown or unconsidered forces. So I thought what I'd do this morning is I'm gonna give you a quick illustration why chance is not the answer. I brought a quarter. A lot of us don't carry, you know, money around with us very often, right? So I put the quarter up here, and just for a second, I'm going to flip it. I can't even see it in the light there. Okay, it landed. Heads. Now, here's the question. What made it land? Heads. Hmm? You flip it in the air, it comes up head. Was it chance that made it land heads? No. Mm Mm-mm. Chance merely tells me the possibilities of it coming up heads or tails in light of all the variables. For example, if someone takes a coin and flips it, they put it on their finger, you know, you have to figure all the variables in. Well, did it start heads up or tails up? And then how much pressure was exerted by the thumb? And then beyond that, how dense is the atmosphere? I mean, is it really, you know, is it like being up in Denver, high air, and it spins a whole bunch of times? Or, you know, is it really thick and it doesn't, you know, do that. And, and how many revelations did the coin actually make before it stopped and landed on heads? The point is, chance only tells us variables, but the only way for this coin to be flipped, because it doesn't happen by chance, the only way for this coin to be flipped is if my thumb does this. Are you tracking with me? The only way for it to move is if something put the coin into motion. It would not do that by itself. So let's take the argument back into the realm of creation. Something had to start everything. Everything. 
That means that everything that is real was created by something or someone real. At the very least, at least someone had to create mass and put it into motion and throw it at each other so it would blow up and have a big bang. But the problem is the God of the Bible tells us that's not the case. Science backs this up completely. There is a law called the law of causality that says this, and this is very important. If you're gonna write something down, catch this. The law of causality says every effect must have a similar or greater cause. Every effect must have a similar or greater cause. Now, let me show you how this would work. Let's say for a second I had a little bitty pebble and I was able, they opened up all the doors and you know, I, I, my baseball background, I would throw it and it lands in the, the, the baptistry over there, okay? Little bitty tiny pebble. That little pebble is not gonna create a tsunami big enough to wipe out the church, right? You wanna know why? I will get a ripple proportionate to the pebble. That's what science teaches you. I can't stand up on the stage here and jump up and down. Hey, do you guys in the back, the upper bowl there, do you feel that? I don't weigh enough to move the earth. You see, if there's, if there's a, an effect out there, if you're moving something massively big enough it had to do, be the cause of that. And so if you and I stop and we look at the, you know, our world, our universe and everything, perhaps you made your way up to Flagstaff or down to Tucson and one of the places out there and you found one of those magnificent you know, uh, 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 telescopes to be able to look at the universe and you realize it's so massive, we cannot see things with the human eye. There's, there's so many you know, solar systems, so many planets, it's just incredibly massive, then science itself would tell you that the cause has to be equally massive or greater. That's our God. That's what he told us. In the beginning, Elohim, I am the creator of all. <coughs> Listen to what the Bible tells us. Psalm 90, <coughs> verse two says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God, it says, formed the earth and the world. Psalm 102 says, of old, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. They will be changed like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. He is everlasting. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. John chapter five, verse 26 literally tells us that God has life in himself. For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son to also to have life in himself. Revelation chapter four, verse 10 says, he's always been here. The 24 elders fell down before him who was seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. We believe that God is the cause of all life. He is Elohim. Now here's the second thing about him. We believe that Elohim, that God is the sustainer of all life as well. 
Colossians chapter one, verses 16 and 17, describing like this, by, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. So in other words, he's the creator. And in him all things hold together. God sustains all things. Do you remember what he described himself as the word Elohim? Creator, sustainer, judge. In him all things hold together. And by the way, we need being sustained. We require air and water and food. We are finite, we die. We're fragile, we get hurt and broken. We need God to sustain us. But none of those things are true about our God. God exists independent of anyone or anything. He's infinite. He's self-sustaining. Part of his sustainability is, is God providing order. And if you read through Genesis chapter one, you see order and purpose in nature and the universe. I mean, he does everything with purpose. Do you realize that, I mean, it's not a secret that our planet alone in all of the universe has the capacity to sustain life. If you're an atheist, you gotta be stopping and scratching your head going, how do we get lucky like that? I can tell you how we got like that. Because God created the earth with us in mind. That fits the biblical account. God cares for us. Now, with order, design come a sense of right and wrong. A sense that is across every culture. I mean, you don't have to be born in the Western world to know that genocide and theft are wrong. Where did, where did this sense of morality come from? No other part of creation has that. I mean, if we're simply biological units, why don't sharks have a sense of morality? Or a lion. We believe that a moral God built into the DNA, the highest of his creation, us, a moral compass to know right and wrong. God, Elohim, is the cause of life. Elohim is the sustainer of life. But thirdly, God will hold us accountable to honor him as God. Romans chapter one, verses 20 and 21 says, for this invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He actually in that case refers to them as foolish. Psalm 14.1 and 53.1 say the same thing. The fool is said in his, in his heart, there is no God. Listen, it's important for you to understand something. God never intended for this book to be a science book. He didn't intend for that to happen. But Genesis 1 tells you where everything came from. That doesn't mean that God has to explain to us every single detail God does not have to defend his actions. 
He does not have to explain things in a way even that seem fair to us. It just doesn't work that way. If you create the universe, you get to make the rules. Here's the fourth truth, that God created us to know him. (coughs) God created us to know him. Years ago, uh, when we actually went back all the way to caring families, which was a thing we used to do with, with, with families years and years ago, we came to the conclusion that it was really important for us to talk about relationships because we would stop and we'd say, look, if you look at Genesis chapter one, you find very clearly that God is a relational God. Let us make man in our image. You go to Genesis chapter two and it tells us that God created us relational beings. It's not good for the man to be alone. You get to Genesis chapter three and you realize that every issue that you and I have is a relational issue, either between me and you or me and God. God created us relationally. He created us with the ability to have relationships. We have the ability to laugh and to think and to decide and to reflect and to give love and receive love and we're self-conscious and no other part of creation has that. And frankly, it makes us special, different. Our lives have meaning and we know it. And that's not a put down on on animal lovers at all. I I love animals as much as anyone else and I think they ought to be treated with great kindness and and all of that, so don't send me an email. (laughs) I'm pro-animal. I'm just telling you I'm not an animal and neither are you. We know the difference between doing something significant or wasting our time. The fact that God had Moses write this down tells us he is knowable. It tells us he wants us to know him. Now, here's the fifth thing. And this is where the challenge comes in. Because this is not directly related to the passage. This is related a little bit more of just philosophy of understanding something here. The fifth thing here is that God created us with a capacity for faith in someone or something. Say, well, what do you mean by that, Bob? Well, I mean this. It is 100% true. I used to think there was only two things that were for sure. Death and taxes, right? Now I'm convinced there's at least three. Death, taxes maybe, but faith. Every single one of us, every single human being in the room this morning is living by faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you are sitting there and you go, you know, Bob, I get your argument, mm, but I, I don't know, could all those scientists actually be wrong? I mean, there's so much, you know, in those theories and blah, blah, blah. If you believe that the evolutionary theories are correct, You believe that by faith because there is no empirical data to back it up. You believe it by faith. So you are putting your life in the hands of that theory. You believe that by faith. You might be sitting here going, you know, I I like church, I like the singing, it's kind of cool and everything like that, but you know, you're getting a little religious for me. And so I'm... It's kind of bugging me just a little bit because I kind of think that, you know, you keep talking about this relationship with Jesus, but I kind of think that maybe it really is just all about, you know, doing more good than bad and that ultimately when I stand before God, what's my column going to be on the good side, you know, higher than the bad side, I'm probably going to be okay. 
I gotta tell you something, that's not in the Bible. And so if you believe that, you believe that by faith. The other side of it is you could be sitting here going, you know, I, I, have, I read the Bible, I love the Lord, I have put my trust in him. You believe that by faith because none of us were there when the creation of the world happened. You understand what I'm saying? God will hold each of us accountable for this moment in our lives. In Philippians chapter two, Paul writes and says these words. He says, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. My question is, are you ready for that? Will that be a good day? What have you put your faith in? Because here's the wonderful promise. The promise is in John chapter one, verse 12, is to as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. To Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an issue of faith. Have you put yours in Elohim? in the creator, the sustainer, the judge. His son Jesus who came to die on a cross for you. Would you pray with me? Just for a second, would you with with closed eyes stop and reflect on where have you put your faith at? Have you trusted in yourself? Or have you trusted in God? You could begin that trust in Jesus this morning. Right where you're at. I'm gonna pray a prayer and I'm gonna simply ask that you pray after me silently right where you're at if you'd like to begin that relationship. Now, many of you, you don't, you don't have to do this again. If, you, if you've ever done this, you don't have to do this a second time. But we love to begin our study of where everything came from by trusting in the one that created it all. So you pray with me if that's your desire. Dear God, I need you. I want you. I'm asking you to change me. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to take control of my life. I invite you to live inside of me, to make me your child, for you to be my God. Let me ask you a question. If you prayed that prayer, would you just do me a favor and Would you just slip your hand up and then put it back down for me so we'll know to pray? Thank you, thank you. If you prayed that prayer, I'd encourage you to stop by Info Central, grab one of those books, the free gift book. It will help you get started the right way in your faith. Father, thank you for your great love. 
that is coupled with your great power, that is coupled with your perfect holiness. Thank you for loving us and making a way for us to know you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Our God, our great God, Elohim, the creator, the sustainer, the judge of all things, by his grace and goodness has put his spirit in the hearts of those who trust him. He's made us his children to tell his story. Go out this week and tell it. God bless you. Love you guys all.